good morning, and I too want to uh, wish you a happy Father's Day, one of my favorite days of the year. As I've mentioned before, uh, Father's Day is the one day that uh, I get Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> guilt-free. Like, I, I do get it. I, I don't want to give the impression, because if someone catches me at Kentucky Fried Chicken, I just picture it now. Pastor Scott, I thought you don't eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, unless it's Father. No, I do. But today, my wife lets me do it. See, there's a difference, <laughs> you know. And so I'm really excited. And um, she said, what should we budget for this? I said, I don't know, $50, $75. Let's, let's. See, then, it's just, then it get, just keeps on giving, right? Tomorrow, we eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's just one great week. Anyways, lots of fun, lots of fun. On Friday, my, uh, one of my boys came home from school, and uh, he had made something for me, and it was in a white bag, and he had written on it, you know, and he said, Dad, do you want to see what I made for you? And I was like, uh, well, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait. And he was like, oh, well, do you want to feel it, Dad, or do you want to just check it out? I was like, no, no, I should wait till today, you know, we can wait. Oh, he's a poor guy, right? He's so, he's so excited about it, but, I, you know. Then mom was sitting there, and he says, Mom, I think this has to go in the fridge. And uh, she's like, uh, oh? She said, he says, you better look at it. And so, uh, so he brings it over to mom. Mom says, no, it's, it's okay. You can go put that in your room. Go hide it somewhere. It doesn't need to go in the fridge. Oh, okay. And so uh, excited. We're going to have Kentucky Fried Chicken. We're going to open some gifts, put them on the shelf, going to be a great day. And so happy Father's Day uh, to all of you this morning. Uh, We will touch on a little bit on uh, fathers here in our message. Uh, We have been journeying through the book of Acts. Here we are in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter uh, 21, I'm sorry, chapter 21. Uh, We're going to read the first 16 verses. We left last week, you'll remember, kind of pondering just the passion of uh, Paul, that uh, he was passionately seeking to reach people uh, and to minister to the church. He did with uh, tears and much prayer and just constantly taught uh, his passion to go to Jerusalem. It said that the Holy Spirit had constrained him to go to Jerusalem, and he wasn't sure what awaited him except that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in every community, uh, testified that he would experience affliction and imprisonment. And then, and then his, he, he held loosely and was generous with those uh, around him who were in need. He was generous with uh, giving much, and uh, he worked hard with his tent ma- uh, uh, business. And, and we talked about how, wow, like, could that not be us? Like, we not imitate this and Paul, and what hinders us? And we talked about offenses. Um, and then uh, that we wouldn't take offense um, Today we're going to continue and find ourselves in Jerusalem with Paul. And now when he had parted from, verse 1, and set sail, uh, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day uh, to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship uh, crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in uh, sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyra. And from there the ship was to, uh, was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days were ended, we departed 
and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Potilomis, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. We had four, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. And when we heard this, we and the people were there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manes of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we come here this morning to worship you, to remind ourselves that you are good, you are faithful, you are kind and sovereign, you hold all things together, to remind ourselves that you are keenly aware of the future and that we can trust you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. We gather together to allow your word to transform our hearts into Christ-likeness. And so remove our blinders here this morning and help us to see clearly who you are and what you're doing in our lives. May our hearts be submissive and willing. We pray this in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Paul is heading to Jerusalem, and as he's heading there, uh, he, Luke kind of gives us a, a bit of a description as to the sailing route that he's on. It says in verse 1 that he goes to Cause and then to Rhodes, a city, and to uh, Patera, and having found a ship, they crossed to Phoenicia, and he, uh, we went and, uh, aboard and, and set sail. And, and then they, they, they talk about continuing east, and as they're going south of Cyprus, on the left-hand side of the boat, they, they see uh, Cyprus, and off they go, and they land in Syria. Syria. And there they spend seven days as the ship is unloaded. The cargo from the ship is unloaded. And, and he's describing this journey to Jerusalem. It's not a, a quick journey by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's, it's a labor-intensive uh, labor journey. It takes time to get from one place uh, to the other. I love the posture of Paul and Luke and those that are traveling with him. As they enter Tyra, they seek out disciples. 
Because uh, they have seven days. The, the cargo from the ship it needs to be uh, removed and sent where it's going, and new cargo needs to be put on. And, you know, of all the things they could have done, they look for the body of Christ. And I love that. I love that that's a priority for Paul to, to get together with believers, to live life with them. And he wouldn't know these disciples. There's no indication that he knew them well. He knew of them, but not like he knew the, the elders of Ephesus, for he had been in Ephesus for three years. Here, uh, you know, he had spent some time in these different places, but not really knowing them. But his priority is to be with the disciples. And I love the description that Luke gives us as they're kind of together, you know. They, they're, they're enjoying each other's company and the relationship gets to a place where, where, where they can have a little bit of conflict, a little bit of opposition. Notice what the text says, that, that uh, through the Spirit, they're telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You see, Paul's going to Jerusalem, and everyone knows that, and yet these believers uh, are, are directed by the Spirit to tell Paul, this is a bad idea. Uh, affliction lies ahead. There's, there's a tension here in the text that uh, it's not contradictory, it's a tension, and the tension is this, that, that Paul is constrained by the Spirit. That's what chapter 21 of Acts, verse 20 says. 20, I'm sorry. Verse 21 says that Paul was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't sure what awaited him, except that the Spirit testified in every city that he would face affliction and imprisonment. And here, the, the account is consistent. He comes to this community, and they're saying to him, this young relationship, this profound relationship, listen, Paul, this is, the Spirit is saying, don't go. Don't go. But Paul feels constrained within to go. He must go. And this relationship, this tension, and the reality of what lies ahead as far as mission goes is something that the people take to heart. Notice that at the end of the seven days, he departs. And I love this. Altogether, the wives, the children, everyone comes down. The body of Christ gathers together. And they accompany Paul and Luke and the others as they leave the city and they kneel down on the beach and they... Pray for him. You know, there, there's something unique about a relationship that's based on Christ. There's a breath of depth that one can have with another believer. And time isn't always what strengthens the relationship, although time is a helpful thing. But even new relationships can grow awfully quick when Christ is at the center of them. It wasn't uncommon for this, this group of people, these disciples and Paul, to pray. Uh, to pray about the mission that lies ahead. To pray for Paul as he prepares to go. Huh. I love that. Friends, I'd encourage you to grow godly relationships with people around you. Uh, to take risks and to, and to be missional in, in your relationships with other people, but not just missional. And not just praying for people apart, but praying together and journeying together. 
That's kind of what's happening here. They say farewell to one another. Uh, Paul and Luke get on the boat and the others go home. It says that uh, in verse 7, that as they finish their voyage from Tyra, they end up meeting some other brothers and they spend a day with them. And, and then from there, the next day they depart and they head on to Caesarea and they enter the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. I want to camp out here for just a moment, if we can. I trust that you remember who Philip is. Uh, this isn't Philip, the disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus. This is Philip, the evangelist. I think uh, this is the only time someone is referred to as an evangelist. Now, Philip enters the picture in the early church, uh, Back when we were working through the book of Acts at the beginning, you'll remember there was a conflict with the Hellenistic Jews and, uh, and the Jewish widows. They were in conflict. The Hellenistic Jews felt like they weren't being properly cared for, and so they brought their concern to the apostles. And the apostles said, no, we need to stick to praying. We need to stick to uh, studying God's word. We need to stick to teaching. Let's find seven leaders to rise up to help. Remember this? And Stephen was one who was chosen full of grace and mercy. Full of the spirit, it says. And Philip was chosen. This is Philip. As one of those disciples. You'll remember that, that they started to distribute the wealth that they had collected. And you'll remember that many people gave to the apostles. They sold their property. They sold their goods and brought their goods, their rainy day funds, all of that. They would bring it to the feet of the apostles. But some tried to deceive Ananias and Sapphira. You'll remember that. Philip was a part of all of that. But attention rose with Stephen and the Sanhedrin, the council, that he would preach Christ, and so they put him on trial. And he works through the Old Testament and the prophets and the law and explains how Jesus is a fulfillment of all those things. And it says that they gnashed their teeth, covered their ears and charged him and stoned him. And a great persecution broke out against the church. So much so that it says that all had scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. Do you remember? Philip went up to Samaria, the despised Samaritans. And there he preached the gospel. And, and, and the scriptures say that signs and wonders were happening. And a great multitude accepted the Lord. And, and the apostles sent a few down to see what was going on and, and to help out. And they were baptizing people. And you'll remember Simon the sorcerer is, sorcerer is a part of that story. And, and I mean, amazing things are happening in Samaria. And the catalyst was Philip the evangelist. And then the spirit speaks to Philip and he, he directs Philip to go and speak to an Ethiopian eunuch who's in a chariot reading. And Philip approaches him and says, what are you reading? Do you understand it? How can I understand the prophets unless someone explains it? Uh, Philip unpacks what's going on there with the, the prophet Isaiah and he explains that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that Isaiah speaks of. The Ethiopian eunuch 
receives Christ, and as they carry along, they see some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. They baptize him, and Philip is translated. He's raptured supernaturally after the baptism. This is 20 years later, more than likely, and he re-enters the picture. He's in Caesarea. And the disciples go to his house to stay with him. Now here's the unique part. Verse 9 of chapter 21 says, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I find it interesting that Luke addresses uh, Philip and that he has four daughters that prophesied. Why do I find it interesting? Well, a few things. One, I I note that mom isn't mentioned. And not that mom isn't an important figure, but it is uh, interesting to me that Philip is an important figure. He's walking out his faith. He's had children in particular, and they too are following in his footsteps. Note also that it's not that he just has a household. There's a descriptor here. He has four daughters. They're not married, and they are prophetess. I love that on a couple of fronts. Notice that they don't prophesy in this text at all. There's no prophecy that comes from them. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it would seem natural for Luke to mention that these daughters who are prophetess prophesied and said to uh, uh, Paul, listen, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. I mean, everyone else is saying that. Why doesn't Luke record that they aren't? Well, even though they didn't prophesy, they were significant. And I think that's why Luke mentions them. See, they took to heart the faith of Philip. Uh, They took to heart the call that uh, God had placed upon their lives. They, They became partners in ministry. It seems like there's a unique relationship between Philip and his daughters. As a matter of fact, if you read church history, Eusebius, the church historian, notes that Philip and his daughters, not long after this, moved north up into Asia, and they spent the remainder of their days there. There's a tomb that can be found with the name of Philip on it, attributed to Philip the evangelist, and at least two of his daughters. Church history says uh, that his daughters and Philip had a profound effect on the advancement of the gospel in Asia. That they were diligent in serving, that they were, they were, they were uh, servants of the Lord, and many locals talked about the impact that they had. Friends, it's Father's Day. As we read and and study the life of Philip here for a few brief moments, the question arises for you and me, how we doing as dads? Dads, how you doing? If your life, your children, were recorded in Scripture for others to read, what would be said? Philip was an evangelist. His daughters were prophets. Prophetess, I'm sorry. See, for Philip, as he, 
as he was involved in ministry, as he was an evangelist for Philip, it was so important that his daughters knew who Jesus Christ was. And so he shared with them. But more than that, he wanted them to walk with Jesus. He wanted them to know who Jesus was. He wanted them to know that Jesus has charted a path for them as well. He's given them spiritual gifts. He wanted them to know that there was much work to be done in the kingdom, and they had a significant role in that. Dads, how you doing? You play a significant and important role in the life of your children. I would say that you trump everyone and anyone. That's been my experience. Whether good or bad. What you say, how you live, how you walk out your faith is so critical in the life of your children. It's of utmost importance. How you doing? Are you helping your children come to a place where they understand what sin is and the, the, the cost of sin, eternal separation from God? Are you helping them understand, your children, uh, what Jesus has done for them and how he's paid in full for all their sin? Are you helping them understand that they can receive the free gift of salvation? Don't stop there. Are you helping them to sort through theologically? Are you helping them to wrestle through the hard issues of our day? Are you bringing a godly perspective to the culture that thrashes against the Christian faith? Dads, how are you doing? Are you modeling Christian faith for your kids? Are you helping them to understand uh, that, that clinging to Jesus is the most important thing that you can do? Are you living out your faith in front of them? More than that, with them. Are you guiding them? See, the evidence for Philip is that he was doing these things. He was helping them in their journey. And Luke notes that these four daughters who aren't married had more than just received Christ. They were prophetess. They prophesied. That was their ministry. It's hard to raise a family, isn't it? And sometimes it can be so discouraging because we struggle with our weaknesses. We struggle with our own faith and journey. And how do we translate that? I encourage, as, uh, as your kids are young, to start using language that they're going to need to understand as they grow older. And even though they don't understand it, and by and large they live by rote, slowly things will start to unpack for them. My, I'm teaching my second youngest how to pray you know, and so we first started, I give him a rote prayer. You know, every night we pray together. And I say to him, pray after me, you know. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Dear, he doesn't say it quite so smoothly. But anyways, dear Jesus, thanks for loving me. Thanks for dying on the cross for my sins. Thanks for dying on the cross for my sins. Help me to walk with you. Help me to walk with you. Something like that. 
Now he just says it. You know, it's time to pray and he says it. But he's expanding in his prayer. It's kind of comical at times and sometimes not overly convenient. Last week we were at a gathering with some friends and I was asked to pray. And I got in an argument with my three-year-old. Dad, I pray? I said, uh, no, it's dad's turn to pray. You pray last time! It's in front of everyone. I, I, it's okay. It's just dad's turn to pray. No, you pray. Dad, I pray after you, dad. I pray after you. I look to the host. Is that okay? It's okay. <laughs> and off he prays. Well, now my youngest, two-year-old, he has to pray after him. And he, well, I can't understand him. <laughs> But, but it's so funny. This is, this is what he does at the table. I go, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Amen. Amen. It's a prayer meeting at our house every meal. Listen, I'm far from perfect, you know, but I'm trying my hardest to help my kids understand how important God is, you know. Yesterday, um, I woke up and I was spinning. You you ever been there? You're just spinning in your mind. You got all these things and you're, you're just, you're not coping too well and then you're a little short with the kids and, and, uh, they're like, dad, dad, let's go play baseball. I love baseball with my kids, you know, and let's go quadding, dad, let's, it's like, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, but I knew I had to spend time with God, because I needed, I needed to refocus, because I needed God's perspective on my life, and so they're, they're pressing me, and listen, playing baseball is pretty refreshing, going quadding's great, but I, I pulled him aside. I said, guys, give me 20 minutes. I need 20 minutes because I, I just need to connect with God for 20 minutes. I said, you go start and I'll come join you. And, and you, you know, you, you wrestle with that because you go, you know, I should be out there playing. But it was, it was so interesting that I'm fighting with even that in my mind because I feel like I'm getting pulled in too many directions. And... Uh, as I shared that with them, I could see in their eyes, I get it, Dad. Because <laughs> really, I'd be a better dad if I just have 20 minutes with God. If I can just refocus, I won't be so, I can. And so off they went, and, and I had a chance just to be with God. And I was kind of reflecting on that, and I did it out of desperation, to be honest. Not out of discipline or out of... Um, legalism. I, I just needed that. And, and I was reflecting, I thought, that was probably a really good lesson for those guys. You know? Dads, how you doing? What's your rhythm? Your kids are the most important thing, gift that God has given to you and to me. 
And all that we would walk with the Lord and help our kids become all that God has called them to be. You know, we all struggle with guilt and all those kinds of things because we're not perfect. I get it. But I believe if we just focus our attention on him and lead with authenticity, it makes it a lot harder not to follow. You know, you may be wondering, is there something that could just help me a little bit? Well, I'm so pleased to announce that the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, children's pastors all got together. They put a resource together, and we want to give it to all the dads. Right, Pastor Kareem? And uh, this will help in the journey. And uh, following the service, you can pick up um, this resource. Share a little bit about it, would you, Pastor Kareem? Philip had four daughters. They were prophetess. Not only did they come to know Christ, but they grew. They were in close proximity to Philip, and Philip influenced them, and they and Philip influenced the church, not just in Caesarea, but in Asia. Oh, that we, we would be men of God who would seek to do that. 
As the text continues on, it goes on to say, while we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now you'll remember Agabus. Uh, Agabus is found in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. There he comes from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell the church of Antioch a message that God had put on his heart, that during the reign of Claudius, uh, a great famine was going to come and to uh, 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 bring great hardship to Jerusalem. He was in Antioch and he was encouraging the church to put together its resources, to help the church move forward in Jerusalem, to help out there. Now, remember, I just mentioned at the beginning of our message this morning that as the church was dealing with the widows, many people, you got to remember this, many people were giving their resources to, to God. They were selling land as Barnabas did, as Annas and Far. Many people were giving generously to the work of the kingdom. You got to remember that for them, giving these resources were, uh, were their savings. It was the part that would help them through a rainy day or a difficult time. And here, they've obeyed and responded to the invitation of God to give generously, to give sacrificially. And now, now a famine is coming. You got to wonder how that would have uh, been for them. Seriously, God? I seriously, I, I gave so generously to the work of the kingdom and now I have nothing and a famine's coming? Who are you, God? And yet God is at work. And when you're 60,000 feet up and you see the beginning from the end, it makes a lot of sense. God sends Agabus up to Antioch and he brings this message and the message is give generously to the church of Jerusalem. And so collectively, they pool their resources together, and Paul and Barnabas head up to Jerusalem with all these resources to help them through this difficult time. And it became a time of praise and worship that God is the God who provides. That you can never outgive the Lord. And now Agabus, he comes down from Judea, the same prophet who had gone to Antioch. Now he comes down. This is 20 years later, likely. And he's still at work, still serving the Lord with fervency. And he comes down and he takes Paul's belt. And he bounds his feet and his hands and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentile. This prophet of God in the same vein of the Old Testament, like Isaiah who had gone before him and, and walked through the, the community naked to declare the judgment of God that was coming. Ezekiel who lied on his side as a, as a declaration of judgment that was coming. In the same vein, Agabus takes the belt, ties up and binds his feet and binds his hands and says, thus is the Holy Spirit. I love the passion of Paul when he heard this. We and the people there, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. Don't, don't go. They urged him. And Paul answers, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that passion of Paul. Passion for people and the passion for mission. His willingness to obey at all costs the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit. 
And so they, Agabus and the others, recognized that they could not persuade him. They stopped and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after this, after these days, I'm sorry, they got ready and they went up to Jerusalem as was planned. Oh, friends, God has charted a course for you and for me. He has, and it's not easy. It's not easy. There's ups and downs, or sideways, there's costs and difficulty, and not just for us, but for our children. May we be found faithful. Don't project the story of Paul on our own lives and say, this is our story. It isn't. But allow the invitation of Paul's walk with Jesus. Hmm. I've said a number of times over the last week, oh, that I would know Jesus so closely, better to be with him in prison than without him anywhere else. Isn't that our heartbeat? That was Paul's. Oh, that we'd know him so well that we would just long to be with him, irregardless of the circumstances. Oh, just to be with him is far better.